Well, good morning. Open your Bible to the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And just to to back up a little bit, uh, when we started the Christmas series, what we're doing is we're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the four Gospels, and looking at how each of the four Gospels explains uh, the incarnation, the, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so we started in John, and we saw how the Word became flesh, and that Jesus is not just a little baby, and, and Jesus is not just a king, but Jesus is God. Jesus is completely, fully, entirely God. And so when we looked at John 1, that, that's what we saw. And then last week, um, uh, well, <laughs> excuse me, when we were planning, um, we were looking at, at doing this and, and uh, having Alex do one as well. And so right away, I appointed the most difficult passage to Alex to do for this series. So he got to do the genealogies last week, which was uh, pretty hard and looking at, at really where Jesus comes from as a man. So that was last week and how he's connected to David. And Alex was very clear that, <laughs> that Jesus is in the line of David. And he fulfills that promise that God made to King David, right? And so that's what we looked at last week. And this week, we're looking at kind of uh, at Luke. And Luke is probably the most detailed of all four of the Gospels that talks about the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding that night in Bethlehem. The, the two uh, are Matthew and Luke. And so if you're really looking to see all the events that happened surrounding the birth of Jesus, with the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and all of that stuff, read Matthew's account and Luke's account, and you can put them together and get a lot. And then next week, we'll look at Mark, and uh, we'll see how how Mark explains Jesus, okay? And so, um, one of the things, I I really think that um, Luke chapter 2 has the most iconic introduction uh, to the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass... In those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all should be taxed. That is a famous sentence. In fact, it's so famous that that as soon as we hear that sentence, we right away know where this is leading, we know what it's talking about, and we're flooded with memories of traditions and, and, and Sunday school lessons and Christmases that we've had before, right? When we hear that, and it came to pass in those days, right? We know what, what, what is being referred to there. But in all honesty, this passage is so familiar. In fact, this time of year and studying the birth of Christ is so familiar that there's kind of danger in reading these passages, the familiarity and the elegance of the words, especially in Luke, can almost put you to sleep. But when you hear it, you say, well, I know what this says. I know what it's going to talk about. I know where this message is coming from. I've heard this before. I know the events. And I know this story. But You can miss amazing things that are right under your nose if you allow yourself to kind of doze off or or, or lose focus when you're reading Luke chapter 2. All right, so to help you in your devotion as you listen to the word this morning and really as you're preparing for for Christmas, I I want to present a couple of questions to you. 
Okay, I want to ask you some questions, and uh, you know, you can talk. Uh, you can talk about these as a family. Uh, if you're in a sermon-based community group, you can expect these questions to be uh, presented to you there. But what do you think about when you think of the Christmas story? What what is it that that comes to mind if I say, "Tell me about the Christmas story"? What is it that you're reminded of? Right? What are the specific aspects of the Christmas story that continue to to draw your attention? What, what is it that you focus on when you, when you think of the birth of Jesus? What do you learn or, or notice or love the most as you're studying the Christmas story? Is, is it the spiritual aspects of God becoming man and what he came to do? Or is it more historical and, and how um, Augustus Caesar set, um, set this registration, the census, and how Joseph and Mary had to, had to move across their country in order for Joseph to be registered and all of those things? Do the wise men confuse you? Is it, it's, scripture is so vague about who they are and where they come from. Do you get lost in trying to figure that out? Maybe those are questions that you can consider in, in the next couple of weeks. But as we read Luke 2, I, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things, Okay. And let me read it first, and then then we'll talk about it. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to, to be here to worship you. God, we thank you that you accept our prayers, you accept our worship, because you are our God. God, we pray that, that we would come to you as our God, that we would be here to worship you, and that we would not be distracted by the things that will pass away, the things of this world. And so, God, we, we, uh, we're here to, to sing of how wonderful you are, to, to see how you've revealed yourself to us in your word. God, we pray that you would increase and, and the focus and the attention would be on you and how wonderful and great and magnificent and holy you are. God, because you're worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor. Well, Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the first thing I want uh, you to see in this passage is, is it talks about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in the coming of Jesus to the world. Okay, and... That is displayed for us, both in what the passage says about the timing of Jesus' coming into the world, but also in the place where he comes to the world. So one of the things that Luke is telling you in verses 1 to 5, uh, specifically, is that God is sovereignly in all the details of the birth of Christ. It is not something that just happened to occur. This did not happen by chance, but God is involved in every single detail, okay? Imagine that you are a faithful Hebrew believer, right? And, and 
you hear that the Messiah is coming into this world. Hey, he's, he's on his way. But you know that he's going to be born of a virgin because you've read Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So you know that a virgin is going to give birth. But you know that she's married to a carpenter from Nazareth. That makes you nervous because you know that Micah chapter 5, verse 2 tells you that the Messiah is not going to be born in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. And so you're, you're nervous and you're saying, Lord, how are you going to get this family from Nazareth to Bethlehem? How is this going to happen? Which, by the way, if, if, if uh, you didn't know, Nazareth is uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem is about the same distance of Billings to Bozeman, okay? Uh, I've not tried to walk to Bozeman, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily want to either, especially with a pregnant wife, right? But God, God will use the most powerful person in the world in this day and the most powerful kingdom in the world in this day, and they'll be his pawns to do his will. The most powerful man in the world, Augustus Caesar, God will use to fulfill his will. So Caesar Augustus, by the way, he's Julius Caesar's great nephew. Uh, Julius Caesar, or excuse me, Augustus Caesar, is going to call for a registration. And that registration would be used in the Roman Empire to kind of provide a census that would kind of, uh, kind of restructure their taxes and kind of adjust those kinds of things. Probably people ended up having to pay more in taxes, of course. And then it also gave some people uh, the opportunity to maybe to volunteer for military service, right? So they say, hey, you look like you'd be a good soldier. Here you are. You're drafted now, right? So that's kind of the things that went on during the census. And so Caesar Augustus appoints a time for registration, and Quirinius, who's the governor of this region, uh, he puts it into place. He says, okay, everybody has to go to their hometown. Everyone has to be registered. We've got a census going on. Caesar Augustus, he decreed this. This has to happen. And so Joseph has to make his way from Nazareth to where he's from, Bethlehem, which just so happens to be the place where the Messiah will be born. Got to go back to register for the census, which was appointed by the Roman emperor, the most powerful man in the world. Now, as far as the emperor knows, he's doing what he wants to do. He's the emperor as, if, through his own mind. He, he's, he's the most important person in the world. In fact, he even declared himself to be God, to be divine. Okay? And in fact, just historically speaking, he's the, the first of the Roman emperors who, who formally did so, who declared himself to be divine, a God-man, right? He knows nothing about this kingdom which God is going to establish through this tiny little child born in Bethlehem. And so Caesar does his thing. He says, okay, I want a registration. I want a census. I'm Caesar. I'm important. My word matters. I want everyone in this empire to do it. And God is in both the timing and the place. He's in all the details of the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born in the fullness of time, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, says this. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, <laughs> under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At exactly 
the time of God's appointment, he comes into the world. God decided, God ordained the time when the Messiah would come. This didn't just happen. It wasn't spontaneous. Now, we wouldn't guess that this would be the right time. Again, pretending that going back as though you're a, a faithful, believing Hebrew. You might have guessed, well, you know, the time of David would be the best time for the Messiah to come. You know, Israel is powerful as a, as a nation, and we have this great and mighty king, and things are going really well for us. That would have been a good time. Or maybe even right after the Babylonians had come. Maybe right after the Babylonians had come. We talked about this in Obadiah. The Babylonians had come, and they destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, I mean, absolutely ripped it apart, destroyed the temple, slaughtered just basically the entire people. It was considered to be the lowest time in Israel's history. Maybe that would have been a good time for the Messiah to come. When God's people were destroyed, when, when they were being ruled by pagan kings. Maybe that would have been the best time for the Messiah to come into the world. But Jesus instead comes into the world at an even lower time. See, because after Babylon came in and destroys Jerusalem, there's 600 years of the Jews being ruled by foreign pagan kings. 600 years of poverty, of oppression. 600 years of, of being persecuted. And so for 600 years, at the time of Jesus, they look back 600 years since they were a sovereign nation. For six centuries, Israel had either been in exile or had been kind of this petty client state. If you had been a believer then, you might have been wondering for six centuries, what is God waiting on? What is it? Does he like to see us suffer? Does he like for his children to be in agony? Does he want us to be hopeless? Does he want to crush our faith? He had promised the Messiah. Where was he? The prophets had prophesied of the coming of this Messiah year after year and decade and now centuries, six centuries. That's a long time. For some reason, my, my gauge gets confused when, I'm, when I study you know, biblical history and I'm looking at the timelines and everything's going on. And For some reason, I think, okay, well, it's just six centuries because I'm looking all the way back to Abraham and Adam and the history of the world. Six centuries is a long time. That's before Columbus came. That's a long time, right? And so, what is it? The, the prophets had promised this Messiah, but now... In the fullness of time, God sends his son into the world. Luke's just telling you that this is God's purpose of working itself out. This is how he wanted it to happen. This, this is the time when it needed to occur. And that's an important lesson for us to learn. Because God's not only at work in the timing and the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ himself says that God is concerned about every detail and aspect of your life. In fact, on the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, you can find it in Matthew chapter, five, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Jesus says, 
Jesus says that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your heavenly Father. Think about that. Think about that. For those of you who are bald, by the way, that's, that's the will of God. Right? He wants you to be bald, apparently. He's that concerned about every detail of your life, that the hair won't come off of your head unless it's his will. And, and he's, he's in the timing of your life. Even if you don't sense it, even if you don't realize it, in fact, even if you flat out reject it, it it's, it's ironic that sometimes the very time that you, that you need to believe this truth the most is when it's the most difficult to believe. There's a saying about God. It goes like this. It says, <laughs> he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. You may think that he's late, but he's always on time. His timing is perfect. And Luke is reminding us of that. Luke's reminding us that he's involved in the details, even, even the place of Jesus' birth. There would have been no reason for Joseph and Mary to pack up in Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem, except that they had to. Because Caesar decreed it. He's displaying his supreme sovereignty in getting Joseph and Mary from Nazareth and Galilee to Bethlehem and Judea so that the prophecy can be fulfilled. So that, so that God's word remains true. So that there's no failing and falling in the promises and prophecies of God. Because the prophets had already declared that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And, and Mary was in Nazareth as a pregnant woman. And so she has to get to Bethlehem. And so God makes it happen. And he does this again through the decree made by the emperor. He has no idea that he's fulfilling the word of God. Remember, this guy, uh, Caesar, was, was not a, a God-fearer. He, he was a pagan. He's not necessarily a good person. And though the world would have looked at his kingdom and said, Caesar's decisions are the most important decisions in the world. This, this person is so important because of who he is and what his position is. Yet what was actually going on through this decree was something far more important than Caesar, far more important than the Roman Empire. God's purposes were far more important than Caesar's. And even though this Caesar saw himself as a god, he was nothing more than a pawn of the God of heaven. Now what lesson are we going to learn from, from this sovereignty of God displayed in the birth of Christ? First of all, God's watch over us is just as extensive and comprehensive as it was over the birth of his own son. God is involved in our lives. He cares about every detail of our life. All of the circumstances of our lives are in his hands. And we can trust him because he's worthy of our trust. But it's hard sometimes. It's difficult to trust him. And again, going back to the Jewish people, God had promised a Messiah, and yet the Messiah didn't come. And God's people are suffering, and they're being oppressed, and it's a dark time for them, and they're confused, and they don't know why God is waiting so long. The same can be true of us. We can be in this life, and then 
there are things in our lives that can be difficult, <laughs> difficult and painful and hurtful and confusing. And we're saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't know why you're letting me go through this. God, if you're sovereign and you're good, then why on earth am I, why on earth am I going through this? Why am I enduring this? Here's the thing. All the people of God throughout all of history could stand with you shoulder to shoulder and say, we understand. We've been there. We, we We went through the same thing. But not one of the people of God throughout all of history will ever say, you know, I... I trusted God, but he let me down. I trusted God, and my hope was in him, but he failed me. They wouldn't say that. They they might say, you know, I wish he would have been a little quicker. I wish his timing was a little more on par with mine. But in the end, they, they could stand and testify that the Lord is faithful in every detail, in every aspect of life. God is faithful, God is sovereign, and God is involved in every single detail. He is trustworthy. And that's one of the things that Luke is reminding us of as we read the story of Jesus' birth. God is involved in every single detail, even if we don't even recognize it. Yeah, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because of what Caesar said, but Caesar's a pawn to the God of heaven. So God's will, God's God's word was fulfilled through Caesar making a decree. That's God working that detail out. Secondly, I want you to see the providence of God. You see it especially in verses 6 and 7, because the way that the Messiah comes into the world is not the way that the world was necessarily expecting, right? So God's providence, we see see the place of Christ's birth, okay? Okay. what did, what did Alex quote from Isaiah 9? In the call to worship this morning, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. I'm not going to read the whole uh, two verses. I'm just going to quote a, a couple phrases from it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's the fulfillment of the promise of David in 2 Samuel, right, that, that Alex talked about last week, right, that, that there will be a king on the throne forever. That, that was God's promise to David. Your line will be on the throne forever and ever. <clears throat> Isaiah 9 is announcing the fulfillment of that promise. That the son is going to be born. And so a son of David who is going to be called the son of God is going to reign in the throne of Israel. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are some pretty incredible titles. To call someone Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we read Isaiah, and it's wonderful, and it's exciting because the Messiah is going to be incredible. And then we read Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and we read that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's laid in a feeding trough. And there's a disconnect there because Isaiah says that he's going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. And Luke tells us, that he's born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. Because there's no room for him in the inn. And this should cause us to question, what's going on here? 
What's going on? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. The government shall be on his shoulders, and there's no room for him in an inn. That's what the scriptures are telling us. That the Messiah is going to be incredible. The governments will be on his shoulders. But there's no room for him. Greetings, highly favored one. The Lord is with you, is what the angel says to Mary. But then his family finds itself in a cattle, st- a cattle stall. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And yet they lay him in a manger. What's going on here? What in the world is happening? What are the scriptures saying to us? There's something very important. And Luke, Luke is communicating this so that we will understand. The scripture is recounting for us the poverty and the deprivation that was experienced by Jesus Christ himself, even his humiliation from the very first few seconds of his birth, of, of his life, all as a part of his purchasing for you forgiveness and glory. Luke is revealing to us really the, the way, the method of the, the purposes of God. God is going to show you a display of his grace in, in stooping down to serve you for your salvation and sending his son not into the world as a king, acknowledged immediately by all, but by being born in such a way that even, a, uh, even an impoverished little child can look at him and say, he's like me. He understands me. He understands what, what it's like to be rejected. He understands what it's like to be hungry. And God doesn't want you to miss that. Because what God is showing us is just how far he'll go to save his people. Just how much he loves you because he will give his son, his only son, and send him into the world not to experience the acknowledgement and and, and the, the respect that he deserved. Not to immediately display the glory that he was, but to be underestimated and marginalized and rejected and hated for you. That's how far God is ready to go. That's how far he'll stoop to serve you for salvation. And it it should cause us to pause because it's amazing. If you're looking for something to think about in the Christmas story, to be honest, that's not a bad one to consider. How far God will stoop to save you. Consider that. There's one last thing that, that I want you to see. That's it's the grace of God's gospel revealed in this passage. God's gospel, God's gift of his son. In this passage, we see something of kind of God's strategy to save a, a multitude of men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor, from every tongue, tribe, people, nation, people all over the world. His strategy is this, to send his son into the world to live fully human and fully divine and to die in our place to do something we are, we are not able to do, we are not capable of accomplishing for ourselves. And I want to say, that's the most surprising thing in the world. And it's absolutely different from everything else that every other world religion or philosophy says. 
Christianity stands apart from every other world religion because of this. Every other religious option boils down to this. It's a dangerous world out there, and God is righteous, and God is good. Well, let me give you some good advice, and you, you have to be good, and maybe God will accept you. That's what every other religion in the world tells you in some way or another. You boil it all down. Every other philosophy, every other religion says that. The words might be different. They, they might have different names for, for, for gods, but it all boils down to be good and maybe you can be accepted by God. Behave yourself. Now consider the gospel. How radical of a story this is. What's, what's explained in Luke chapter 2. How radical of a story that is. Think about that. What is it that you have to do for salvation? Nothing. God sends his son into the world. He did it for you. You don't have to accomplish anything. Of course, you have to repent and, and trust and believe. But that's, you don't have to achieve it. You don't have to accomplish it. You don't have to do it because it was done for you. In every epic adventure of, of literature, in every culture... What is celebrated is that there's some great quest that's performed, right? And you, you, can, you can look back at your world literature class in freshman year of college or whatever, and you, you, you think of, of all of these, these great epic adventures that, that these stories talk about. There's, there's no great quest for us to perform. I don't have to go get anything. I don't have to go do anything. I don't have to go accomplish anything because Christ did it for me. Christ is the one that went on the quest. Christ is the one that did the work. Christ is the hero of the story, not me. And so many world religions, there are pilgrimages that, you, you must, that must be performed in order for you to be right with God. You must go to some special place in order to make yourself right with Him. And Luke 2, there's no pilgrimage that's undertaken by you or me. But there is pilgrimage taken by Christ. He bridged the gap between God and man when he comes into the world to save us from sin. See, this story is not about a quest or a pilgrimage or a great accomplishment that you have to do in order to make yourself right with God. This is a story about what God is doing to make you right with him. The message is not be good and maybe you'll be accepted by God. The message is look at what God, God will do to cause you to be forgiven and pardoned and be accepted and, and, and be changed and transformed and to enjoy fellowship with him forever. He did it. Look at how far he will go to make that happen. That the holy God of the universe would become would become a man and would be born to poor parents. And there'd be no room for him in an inn, so they're going to lay him in a cattle trough. He's rejected before he's even born. And he'll be rejected all the way to the day of his death. The story is about God's Son in the fullness of time being sent by the Heavenly Father into this world. That's the story, and John sums it up perfectly. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That sums it up perfectly. It's not about what we will do to make ourselves right with God because we can't make ourselves right with God. I can try and try and try and I can work my fingertips until, until they're down to the bone. But the scripture says my, my good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7 is this. There's a way for you to be good, but you can't do it. You can't. But Jesus can and Jesus has. Jesus has come so that you can be accepted by God. Not because of you, <laughs> excuse me, not because of you, who you are, or what you've accomplished, or what you've done. Not because you're deserving. Not because of anything in you. But because of who he is and what he has done on your behalf. The whole gospel story is about what God is doing for your salvation. Not what God asked you to do so that you can be accepted by him. And so even, even in this passage, we see, how, we see how radical, how completely unexpected the gospel of Christ is. It's a gospel that calls on you to renounce your own attempts to make yourself right with God and to trust in the way that God has provided for you to be right with him. And that is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It would be tragic this Christmas for us to enjoy the celebration of this season. The traditions and the gifts and the time with family and all of those things. And ignore the gospel. And ignore the fact that God became man. He stooped so low to such extreme depths to save us. The gift in Christ, the story that Luke has set before us today, is the focus of Christmas. Yeah, celebrate. Yeah, have family and friends over. Do, do ugly sweater parties and all of that stuff that is so fun around this, this time. But never lose focus of the gospel. Never lose sight of what the story is. The story is you can't do it, and so God became a man to do it for you. That's the message. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to, to be here. God, you are good and you are kind and you are gracious. And God, we, we know that, that we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve salvation. What we deserve is judgment because we're guilty. But God, you are merciful. And you sent your son to die for the sins that we committed to save us from our own sin, to save us from your wrath. God, that, that is mind-blowing. Father, we know, that, we know that we don't deserve it, we know that we didn't earn it, but it's all because of you and what you have done. Father, I pray that if there's someone in here who doesn't know you, doesn't know what it means to be a Christian, doesn't know what it means to repent of sins, or, or, or who is honest and says they don't understand the gospel, God, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. I pray you'd reveal their sins to them, that you would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. 
and that they would cry out for mercy and run to Jesus for salvation. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.